0: Well, as I mentioned, we are going to take a short break from uh, 1 Corinthians. And uh, and I know we've been really enjoying the last few weeks of 1 Corinthians, uh, so we will be putting that on hold for a little bit as we go into Advent. And uh, these next four weeks, we're going to be spending specific time uh, preparing our hearts to enjoy and to be filled with the joy of the Lord, as we just sang this morning, over the greatest gift that God has ever given us, which is the arrival of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Often, however, during this time of Advent, though it is a time when we're supposed to be preparing our hearts, our perception of things often gets skewed, especially things like the good news, like the gospel. Those things get a little marred, a little blurred, maybe because we take for granted uh, some of the many aspects that precede the good news. Uh, We forget about what leads up to the good news. I'm not just talking about the bad news. Uh, I talk about that quite often, that in order to have good news, you have to have some kind of bad news, but I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about a lot of things that we just take for granted that lead up to the point of the good news and the birth of Jesus. One thing, for instance, is just our existence. We think that our existence is kind of expected or normal. We kind of take it for granted that we exist as on a planet, as humans, we don't really think too much about that, where we came from and what the, the, the backdrop is, what the background is. We just kind of assume we've always existed. It's no big deal. What does that have to do with the gospel? What does that have to do with the, having some kind of amazement towards the good news of Jesus Christ? What does creation and my existence have to do with the leading up to the birth of Jesus? But we assume too much, and we don't think deeply enough about some of these things that lead up to the birth of Christ. So for Christians today, we can take the birth of Christ for granted. We can take creation for granted. Sometimes for Christmas, at worst, we treat Christmas like at the time just to be around family or to exchange gifts or have an excuse just to buy ourselves something a little extra nice. And often this is the case, sadly, and maybe at best we might treat it as just like the time to, to say happy birthday to Jesus, and that's about it. And sometimes that's the, the best we get out of it as far as just our minds being on Christ. We have a, a bad case of what I call gospel amnesia. We forget very quickly the events surrounding the coming of Jesus, what his life was all about, what his birth was for, and, and what led up to this miraculous and rather improbable event called the advent of Jesus. So for the next four weeks leading up to Christmas, we're gonna be looking specifically about how God in his infinite wisdom has designed this most ultimate storyline that we get to participate in, this ultimate and epic drama that we get to participate in. The beginning of this year, we started with a series that we would kind of dip in and out of throughout the year called Wisdom Cries Aloud, Seeking truth in a noisy culture, where we kind of looked at various points of how God's wisdom breaks into our life. And so we're going to end the year with this Advent series with the same title called "Wisdom Cries Aloud." See, because wisdom, or Advent, I should say, means arrival. That's what Advent means. Every year we celebrate the arrival of our Savior. And this year I'd like to focus on the fact that because Christ has actually come. That means that God's wisdom then therefore has also come in full form, in the form of a human, a baby. And as that baby cried aloud for the first time in that manger 2,000 years ago, the word of God made flesh. The wisdom of God made flesh. He broke the silence, the darkness, in the cold of this world to usher in his light, his heat, and his wisdom. Christ himself is the wisdom of God. He is the wisdom of God. And we want to celebrate the arrival of God's wisdom made flesh. So, this year for Advent, we're going to be looking at the wisdom of God as seen in the four major themes of the redemptive story of mankind. And how God's unexpected and often unassuming wisdom weaves through these four major themes. We want to look at these major themes because without having this grand context in our minds and in our hearts, we're going to miss out on the whole purpose and point and climax of this Advent. So, the four things are going to be first this week, today, we're going to be looking at God's wisdom and his decision to create, we're going to be looking at creation. Next week, we're going to look at how his wisdom works through the fall of mankind, what the fall was all about, and how God's wisdom is actually weaved in and through the fall. The week after, we're going to be looking at how his foolishness, quote unquote, and his weakness are actually wisdom and strength, strong enough to create a solution for the problem. We're going to be looking at redemption. So creation, fall, redemption. And then the last week, we're going to be looking at how his wisdom ultimately brings us to a place of eternal glory, bliss, and unending worship, perfection, and joy. So we'll be looking at the restoration. So creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration. And then finally that night, that, on that last Sunday on the evening, December 23rd, we're, with anticipation we're going to be celebrating the arrival of this wisdom made flesh, the wise plan of God. So as we look today at creation, there's so many different verses in God's word about creation. And Before we pray and ask the Lord just to lead us uh, in his word today, I, I want to bring up just a few before we look at the one that really stuck out to me that I wanted to focus in on today. But when it comes to creation, uh, there's a handful of these. Genesis 1-1, obviously. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness is over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Jeremiah thirty seven or thirty two seventeen. Sovereign Lord, you've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Romans eleven thirty six, for for from him and through him and for him are all things, to him be the glory forever. Isaiah forty, twenty eight. Do you not know, have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. Or Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Or Psalm 33, 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. But I want to focus on one particular verse, though there are so many. But has, this one has a phrase, one phrase that we would expect to see and one that we would not expect to see necessarily. This is Jeremiah 10, verse 12. It says, It is He who made the earth by His power, who established the world by His wisdom, and by His understanding stretched out the heavens. I'd like to pray as we think through that verse and look at God's wisdom and His plan for creation and for the redemption of mankind. Father in heaven, it is you that has made the earth. By your power and by your wisdom, you've done this incredible work. But God, we often take for granted our own existence, the existence of this universe. We think that it's just always been, always will be. It's just kind of normal. We don't think about uh, how we came about, why we came about, and how that actually illuminates the advent of Christ so much more. When we fit and fix the advent of Christ in this huge narrative of creation and then the fall, the redemption and restoration All of a sudden, it makes the Advent, it makes Christmas and the celebration of the birth of Christ so much more meaningful, deep, and rich, awe inspiring, worship filled. So, Holy Spirit, lead us into this truth today. Help us. Help us to prepare, as we sing every Christmas, help us to prepare room in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, in our schedules in our conversations with family and friends around this time of year. Help us make room for your son. We love you and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Jeremiah ten twelve, It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. We know that God created everything by his power. We talk often of that, and we kind of think that. Obviously, we know God is so powerful, He can create all these things. That's kind of a common theme when it comes to creation. So we take that one, we assume that one. That's why I said there's one phrase that we would expect, the phrase here that says, He made the earth by His power. We expect that kind of language when talking about creation. But there's another phrase in here that we wouldn't quite expect, maybe, when it comes to creation, describing creation. It says there in 10.12, "...who established the world by His wisdom." Again, yeah, not, just, not just his knowledge, like, oh, I know how to build a, a planet, right? We know he's smart enough to do it, but his wisdom. And his wisdom he created. What was wise about him establishing the world? How does creation put his wisdom on display? I, I get how it puts his power on display. I get how it puts his knowledge on display. But how does it put his, his wisdom on display? Because let's face it, if you built something epic, and then on the last day you built it, or the next day it broke, because isn't that what happened? He creates this epic universe, and then the pinnacle of his creation, human beings, we break the whole thing. So if, if you want to put your wisdom on display and you create this amazing thing, and all of a sudden it breaks, wouldn't that actually seem to be putting his foolishness on display? Wow, nice creation, us simpletons broke the whole thing. I mean, when you think about any time you, you do some massive project at home or you have some great grand idea and when it breaks, people don't look at you and go, man, you're so wise. They look at you and they go, how foolish was that? I think of a few things just in our kind of pop culture history, some big events, big things that, that failed, sound like a great idea that ended up being a total disaster. I think of Crystal Pepsi, for instance, what a great idea Crystal Pepsi was. Let's make a soda, a cola, that's clear. Everyone loved it at first, then eventually it tanked. They put $150 million into that ad campaign. Foolishness. It broke. I don't know if you knew about this one, but Coors at one point actually wanted to get into the sparkling water business, and they made Coors Sparkling Water. I'm thinking, isn't that just called Coors Light? <laughs> I mean, that's all it is, right? But it was foolishness. Everyone kind of looked, and just, everyone just kind of shook their head and like, that is a terrible idea. Of course, just get, don't get in the water game. And so we see those kinds of things that happen and, and you know, we, we do all kinds of things. You know, we plan uh, epic times with our family, whatever, and then they end up just a bust and we look like fools. And so I'm thinking here when it comes to God and his, this great creation, he was doing so good up until day six. If he wouldn't have just made people, this whole place would be sweet right? But he goes that extra distance, and he grates people, and the whole thing breaks. How does this put on display God's wisdom? I don't quite understand that as I first think about that phrase. So let's look. You can follow along here in your notes, just looking at creation itself. And we look at this first chapter, so to speak, of these four chapters that we're going to be looking at the next four weeks. So God's decision to create. First of all, it's important for us to understand that it has not always been Creation has not always been. Hebrews 11, verse 3, says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So at some point there was nothing. There wasn't just a bunch of building blocks that existed and he's like, oh, I'm going to go over here. I'm going to take these things and put these things together. No, he created something and everything out of nothing. At one point, there was just nothing. We assume our existence, but we should not. There was a time in history when there was absolutely nothing. There wasn't even outer space. There weren't gases in the atmosphere. There was nothing except God. Only God. And guess what, church? When it was nothing and just God, it was very good. It was very good even before creation. Because God was there. Nothing, nothing was lacking when there was nothing except for God. There was no lack. Nothing was bad. It was very good. The triune God existed, Father, Son, and Spirit, with perfect and complete love, fulfillment, joy, satisfaction, and enjoyment of each other. But he took from nothing and created something, but it was not always this way. Secondly, God created by his own will, by his own desire. There was nothing that was needed. This was not necessary because, as I said, everything was very good. There was no lack. He was not forced or obligated. He wasn't empty feeling. He wasn't lonely. He had perfect fellowship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfect joy, satisfaction relationally. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11 says, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will, They existed and were created. You created all things and by your will, by God's will and desire, these things existed and were created. To think that somehow God needed this creation or was lonely or bored or something would be to say that somehow God was incomplete without his creation. Something was missing in his heart. But if God was incomplete, well, he would not be God. Only a true God, a true God. A true God must be complete and whole in himself for him to be a true God. Any God who lacks is not a God by definition. For God to be God, it would necessitate that he was perfect and also complete, not dependent on anything not depending on anything for his own completion, his own happiness, his own satisfaction, or his own wholeness. He's unchangeable, meaning that nothing can be actually added to him to improve upon him. He didn't create and say, oh, I feel so more complete now. I've improved somehow my own existence. And also nothing can be taken away from him to make him any less or different than who he is. He is unchangeable. So he did this, he created by his own will, not any kind of compulsion, not any, out of any lack or need for dependence, only because he wanted to. Thirdly, he transcends his creation, but is also imminent. I'll define these terms for you, but we see this again in Genesis chapter 1, that God existed before creation. So we know that means that he transcends creation, meaning he is above and outside of creation, not dependent on creation. He's not in creation in the sense of what we might call pantheism, where God is in all things, but he is outside of creation. So he, is, uh, he transcends creation. He's above and outside, inter- independent of his creation, But at the same time, he's also not simply a God who's powerful enough to create and then sits above and outside of his creation and just kind of observes. That's what we would call deism, where God created, kind of spun the top and just went, let it go on its way, just step back and just see how long it can go. That's not what's happening. That would be a God who is transcendent, but not a God who is imminent in his creation. He's also one who is actively involved in and within his creation, and that's called his imminence." not to be confused with imminence, <laughs> which is another word which means or something that's imminent, meaning it's going to happen. There's a different word. There's an A in it, not an I, so it's different than the word you might be more familiar with. Ephesians four six says, "There is one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So He is outside of His creation, above His creation, but also personally and intimately involved from within." A.W. Tozer says it this way, God is transcendent, that is, far above and independent of his creation, but he is also imminent, very much involved in that creation. He is over all, through all, and in all. What a mighty God we serve. So though God is imminent and deeply involved among his creation, he's also distinct and above and beyond his creation. Now, a true God must be, as I mentioned, he must be transcendent, must be totally independent of creation for him to be a true God. And this would mean that a true God could also not be a God who could be found. A true God, if he's a true God, if he's truly above and outside his creation, he is a God who could not be found if he's a true God. No one on earth can just go, find God because God is a God who needs to be revealed because he's above and outside of his creation his thoughts are above our thoughts his ways are above our ways he transcends creation so here's an example I would give if if you and I were just sitting out in a desert somewhere And I said, look, I've got a task for you. I want you to go tell me who God is. I want you to go find God. And the first thing I want you to tell me is the most basic thing about any kind of meeting of a person. I want you to come back. You've got three months to do it. I want you to come back and tell me his name. What would you do? You'd go and you'd look under rocks and you'd look at the sky and maybe you could figure out a few things about God. I think he's a creator. But you can't even figure out the most basic identification of a God, his name. And you might say, well, I I would pray. But I'd say, well, but to pray, I mean, you would still need God to somehow speak and reveal himself to you. You can't even find his name unless God reveals his name to you. You can't read a Bible because the Bible is the revelation of God. This is a gift that he says, I'm gonna give this to you to reveal myself to you. So you can't read a Bible to find out his name because this is a revealed gift something that he initiated and gave to us. We cannot find God on our own, in ourselves, because he is so far above us. He is not a God that could be found. We were watching uh, old home videos uh, a couple nights ago. This time of year, for some reason, you just kind of get in that nostalgic mood. And So we were watching some old videos, and my boys were, you know, were little, you know, four or two years old. And... Um, things, you know, just kind of going around there trying to find Easter eggs, all kinds of stuff. And it made me uh, reminded of times when I was uh, um, playing hide and seek with them. And they're about that age and maybe even a little younger. And I know I've shared this uh, analogy before, but when I'm playing hide and seek with my boys, when they're, you know, four and two or three and one or whatever, I go hide. Now I'm, I'm, a, I'm a dad, I'm older than them. If I wanted to, I could hide from them. I could go up in the attic, I could go anywhere, and, I could, and they, would, they wouldn't find me for months. If I really wanted to, my kids would never be able to find me because I'm smarter than them, okay? But because I'm a dad who wants to be found, what I do is I might go and hide behind a curtain, and there's the curtain come along, and then it bulges out here, and they see my feet poking out from the, from the bottom. And they can't find me on their own unless I choose to somehow reveal myself even if I'm veiled a little bit. And so they're looking, they're scouring, so they're searching, and they, in one sense, from their perspective, they found me. But from my perspective, and the true perspective, is I let them find me. I revealed myself to them. And so though you and I, we have these experiences in our life. For me, it was 21 years ago when I found Jesus, and I really found him, but I know I didn't really find him. He found me. He revealed himself to me. He opened my eyes so I could see him. Because if it wasn't for that, I would just be searching the whole earth for God never would find him because he transcends his creation. He's above me. He's smarter than me. Unless he reveals himself to me by his mercy and grace and because of his love towards me, then I would never find him. I'd be lost forever. But we serve a God who is both transcendent above creation but also is imminent in creation and desires to reveal himself to us so that we can know him and so that we could be saved. So this glorious, unfindable God yet has chosen actually to be a God who can be found. Because let's face it, if he could be found by simple human beings like us, he would be a pretty terrible God. Right? Like if I tried really hard to, to hide from my kids and they could actually find me, I'd be the worst hide and seek guy ever. Right? So, This God, so glorious and above all things, transcendent above creation, unfindable, yet chooses to be found. Chooses to let us find him. A God who desires to make himself known because we can't do it on our own. He must reveal himself. Romans chapter 1, 19 and 20 says... For what can be known about God is plain to them, speaking of unbelievers here, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes. So God's invisible. We can't find him. But his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So even in creation is when he first reveals something about himself, Creation was the first act of his revelation of who he is, showing the world who he is. He, he revealed that, his, that he exists by creating us, by creating this world, revealed himself, kind of pulled the curtain back and said, look, I exist. And so his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made So they are without excuse. We have no excuse because God has revealed himself even in creation. He chose to promote himself, so to speak, by creating. He wanted to reveal himself and let the world know that he existed. So he created a world so that this world could know that he existed. But that point is to say that he chose to put his glory on display. This was a self-centered choice that he made to put himself on display to create and reveal, to create a world so he could reveal himself, was actually a self-centered choice, which is number four, that he is actually selfless in his self-centeredness. can probably cause some pause for us to hear God being described as self-centered. That makes sense because we know it's wrong for us to be self-centered. It's sinful for us to be self-centered. But we're sinners. We're sinners, and so it's wrong for us to be self-centered. We're not the God of the universe. So it's wrong for us to be self-centered. And so, though it would make sense for God, who is the God of the universe, the maker of heavens and earth, the epitome of glory, it would make sense for him to be self Centered, And it makes sense for it to be good for him to be self-centered. I mean, church, think about this for a second. Is there anything else that you can think of that you would rather have God center his whole existence around? Is there anything that you would say, God, I wish you totally just revolved around this thing or that thing. I wish you revolved around me. I mean, that's what, I know that's what we, we really want. <laughs> but we know that's wrong. We know that's bad. There is nothing else that we should possibly want God to center his whole existence around, his whole plan, his own purpose, other than himself. So it's actually a good thing for God to be self-centered. It's, do we say all the time we want to be God-centered, Jesus-centered, gospel-centered? Don't we want him to be God-centered? If we say we want to be God-centered, why would we not want him to be God-centered? We want him to be God-centered. We're glad that he is God-centered. It's actually good news for us that God is self-centered. It's really, really good news for us that God is self-centered. Here's an example I might give. You think of any, any artist that you like, any director that you like, any author you like, and those, those different artists, they, they sit in their bedroom and they write their works, and they composed their music and it would be a tragedy if they didn't want to self-promote themselves and somehow get their work out there. To have some of Beethoven or Mozart's greatest works just stay in this, their bedroom and never see the light of day, to have it just be confined, would be a terrible thing. It would be a terrible thing to have some of these things just locked up somewhere somewhere where we cannot enjoy these things. Now, God was perfectly glorious in his own self-existence. These people, those authors, those musicians, are are geniuses no matter if anyone knows it or not. Is that right? I mean, if you you write some of the things these people wrote, some of these screenplays and stories and novels, they're They're geniuses no matter what. doesn't matter if we know about their work or not. they're, They're still genius. God was perfectly glorious, perfectly complete, Perfectly holy, perfectly loving in his self-existence. Had perfect union with the Father, Son, Holy Spirit between the three. No sin, no mess, no death. Just like the genius artist cooped up in his bedroom creating masterpieces. And they're there enjoying their own selves. God is enjoying himself, and it is very good. And like an artist, if you could suspend reality for a second and strip the ego from the human artist... If an artist knew that by making his creation known, whether it was a book or a song or a movie, and he knew that it could bring great joy and blessing to the world, wouldn't you want that artist to get published? You would want that. If you knew that his work would actually bless the world, you would want that. Now, again, I know that humans have their egos, so self-promotion is not totally pure with humans. But you would want an artist to be self-promoting and so to speak, artist-centered, self-centered, because you know that their work can actually bless all of us. You would want them to be that way. Or imagine sitting in a basement as some, some guy sitting at home in his basement and he found the cure for cancer, found the cure for AIDS. Wouldn't you want him to become self-promoting and to climb and clamor for fame so that he can let the world know what he has found. You would want that. You would want that man to come out of his basement and share with the world. You won't want him to be self-promoting. See, if God is focused on displaying his own glory, if his greatest desire is to make his glory known, that's good news for any recipient of that glory. If we know we've been blessed by songs and, and different music and movies, and different things that other doctors and scientists have found out, then we should know that God being self-promoting of His glory is good news for us. He doesn't want us to be centered upon ourselves, nor to seek happiness or joy in our own strength or our own abilities. He actually knows the greatest joy that anything could possibly actually have is to actually be able to behold the beauty, the glory, the might, the majesty, the awesome revelation of God Almighty. Everything else he knows is going to disappoint. John Piper says it this way. I love this. To make people just simply feel good about themselves when they're actually made to feel good about seeing God is like taking someone to the highest mountain peaks of the Swiss Alps and locking them in a room full of mirrors how disappointing would that be? If I told you I'm going to take you to the top of the Swiss Alps, it's going to be this breathtaking view. We get there and I put you in a room full of mirrors. You just look at yourself. But isn't that what we do? When we become self-centered, we're just looking at self instead of beholding the beauty of God, the glory of God. What a letdown to be locked in a room like that when the glory and majesty of the Swiss Alps is just on the other side of that wall. What a tragedy it is for us when we live our lives self-centered. When we're made to actually behold the glory of God that he has revealed to us, starting with creation. I mean, some of the greatest earthly joys that we have on this earth are beholding something that is greater than us. We're so self-centered naturally, but yet... Our greatest joys are actually outside of us. For me, I think of times we were talking just last night, at a dinner with my family, some of our favorite moments or favorite places that we've gone or seen. I think of myself just dangling my feet off the edges of the cliffs of Moor in Ireland. Just a breathtaking view of, of this place. Or a time when my wife and I, we were on the peak of the Kalalau lookout in Kauai on our honeymoon, my new bride. And we're up on this lookout and the clouds are actually moving through us because we're that high and looking out at this this, this open expanse, this valley leading out into the Pacific Ocean. Or for me, it's maybe five minutes before touchdown in Africa, looking out at the African plain, just this, this, this continent that I love, seeing that, or flying past Mount Kilimanjaro and just seeing it in the distance. One of the highest mountains in the world. Or maybe it's times when I was watching my boys be born, I'm just beside myself. This, these moments transcend me. Maybe for me, it was also baptizing my son three weeks ago with my wife. But I didn't stand at the top of the Kalalau lookout in Kauai or dangle my foot off the edge of the Cliffs of Moher and, and look at these, these amazing cliffs and think to myself, I I'm so awesome. (laughs) That was the last thing on my mind. These moments don't cause us to look at ourselves. They start to just penetrate our hearts in a way that makes us feel so insignificant, but also so grateful and thankful that we get to actually witness something like this and behold something like this. The greatest joys and exhilarations in our life, the different experiences we have, are not moments when we see ourselves as being so great, but when we're overwhelmed with something so much greater than us. This is why Psalm 19 says this, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. God created so that we would behold his glory and be amazed and exhilarated with joy when we actually behold God. When we behold the glory of something magnificent, there's this profound delight and ecstatic joy that overcomes us, that we revel in. And there is no greater joy, no greater object or person or phenomenon to behold than the creator of the universe, God Almighty. And he knows this. He knows that he is the greatest gift that he could give to us. Greater than any lookout, greater than any cliffs, greater than any human being born in our lives. He knows that he is the greatest gift that he could give to us. He knows how much joy he would bring to creatures that are outside of himself, that are below him. He knows how much joy he can bring them. And so in his wisdom, driven by his love, fueled by his power, he creates. And all of this that you see in life, your own bodies, everything, was created by God's word. His word went forth from his mouth and created everything even incredulously, he created people, people in his own image, and he created them for his own glory. Isaiah chapter 43, verses six and seven says, I'll say to the north, give up, and to the south, don't withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. You were created for God's glory and to behold God's glory. But through creation, just general creation, we could really only see the effects and the products of his wisdom. We can behold his creation and see shadows and hints of his greatness. You know he's a creator. You know he's pretty smart. But even all of this was still unsatisfactory to God. He desired to be among us not just create for us and step back and hope we like just the hint of his glory, the hint of awe and wonder over a lookout or a cliff. That wasn't enough. He, he, he wanted to be among us, to not just have this be a one-way street where he knows our innermost beings and he knows us intimately, as it says in Psalm 139, but we know little of him, just some basics, being a creator He wanted more than that. He desired more than that. He wanted it to be so that we can not just know his creation and the products that he makes, but that we could actually know him. That was his ultimate desire. And so his eternal word that created all things, his words that come from his very thoughts, his words that come from his very desires, from his heart, from his own mind, his word that comes from his being, his word that comes from his nature, he caused that very word to become Visible. But not as a tablet of laws, not as a pillar of smoke or a burning bush, but as one of us. His own word and desires, his heart, his thoughts, became flesh, living, breathing, talking. Crying, as a baby. A baby crying out, calling out aloud in the darkness of the night, in the cold and dark of the world. A baby 2,000 years ago cried aloud, shouting forth the arrival of God's wisdom made flesh, God's plan in human form, God's desire to be known, now is alive on the earth so that we might know him and behold his glory and be filled with joy and awestruck wonder as we look upon the face of God. And because he's not only a transcendent God who is above all things, but because he's also an eminent God who is deeply involved in his creation it shouldn't surprise us then to find out that even as this very word created all things, this very word didn't just leave us here, but this very word also upholds all things. And Hebrews chapter one, verse three, says that he, this wisdom made flesh, this baby, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint, the exact revelation of, Of his nature. And he, this wisdom made flesh, upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Church, it's an incredible story, isn't it? That God and his wisdom created all things so that he could reveal himself to people who are outside of him, below him, less than him. But he did this as part of his wise plan to reveal his glory to us so that we could seek him and find him and, and savor him, be amazed by him, be overwhelmed and overcome by him, be exhilarated by him, be filled with joy over him, But the story doesn't end here. It deepens. And it gets dark. And it even seems that God's wisdom fails. But as we unfold the story over the next four weeks, we're going to see God's wisdom working even through the fall of creation. Though it seems as though the word of God failed... It seems as though his wisdom failed or had fault in it. We're gonna see that God's wisdom is threaded through even the fall of humanity and the, enter, uh, the entering of sin into the world. And we're gonna see over the course of these four weeks, God's wisdom working through this whole story, the story of the redemption of mankind, why it happens, and why this advent of the wisdom of God made flesh is so important for us something to celebrate, something to be in awe of, something that we should prepare our hearts and make room for as we lead into this season. We'll see how this ultimate display of his glory brings about the joy of his creation. So I'd like to pray now. And I want to just ask the Lord to help us, to help us these next few weeks that in the hustle and bustle of everything, chopping and making lists and planning get-togethers, and none of these things are bad in themselves. And I think much of these things God actually takes a lot of joy in, seeing us get together with family, being generous towards each other. These things aren't the evil side of Christmas. They can be, but they're not necessarily when we do these things begrudgingly or selfishly or whatever. But as we do all those things, We want to have God be the center of this. We need to make Christ the center of this. We want to go into this season just filled with awe and wonder. That is the name of Jesus, the the image of seeing him being born, thinking about him being born, crying aloud, having the wisdom of God cry aloud in such a real way through the cries of that baby that that would overwhelm us, that would fuel us and drive us, and not just into the season, but beyond. But I hope that as we go through these four weeks, uh, we will have a very worship-filled and awe-inspired Christmas. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are just overwhelmed. And awestruck, because we we take for granted so often just simple things, just like our own uh, birth, our own existence, the moon, the sun, the stars. We don't really think about how that leads up to and culminates in this great story of just redemption of the advent of the Messiah coming to this earth. This baby that was born 2,000 years ago. Jesus coming to this place. The word of God made flesh. The son of God entering into this world so that we can know you. That despite the fact that our sin... And the fallenness of man has come between you and us. You being a a God who desires to be known, you reveal yourself. Firstly, you you just created the universe and created humanity. But you didn't just leave us here just to kind of look and see, oh, it seems like there's a God out there who's a creator, but you actually wanted to live and dwell among us. It's amazing, it's incredible. So help us, Lord, as we gather our hearts and thoughts going into this season. Help us to make your son the center of this month and this celebration. We thank you, God. Thank you that your desire for your own glory brings us the greatest joy. Thank you that your God-centeredness is selfless, and generous, and giving, and actually is sacrificial. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We worship you. Into the mighty name of Jesus, that we pray and ask all these things. Amen.